0: A new tragedy. Muhammad lived with his mother, who doted on him, and looked after him as the most loving mother could look after the dearest of her children. It is worth noting that Amina did not remarry after her young husband died. This was quite unusual in Meccan society, where marriage to widows and divorcees was commonplace. Amina had several qualities which recommended her to any suitor. Prominent among these was her noble birth, which was a very important factor in that society. Nevertheless, Amina did not marry again. Perhaps she could not remove from her mind the thoughts of the events which preceded the tragedy of losing her husband. She had enough signs to indicate to her that her son was certain to play a great role. She probably thought that devoting herself to the upbringing of her child would give her all the satisfaction she needed. It is in this light that we view her trip to Yathrib with her son, now six years of age, and his nurse, Umm Ayman. She wanted him to visit the clan of Al-Najr, his maternal uncles. When a man married into another tribe or clan, everyone in that clan or tribe would be considered an uncle to his children and grandchildren for the rest of time. al mother belonged to the clan of Al-Najr, and this is the reason for counting them as the Prophet's uncles. More importantly, Amina wanted her son to visit his father's grave. Perhaps she thought that it was time for him to realise that his father was buried in Yathrib, a long way from Mecca. Muhammad and his mother stayed for a month in Yathrib before starting their journey back. It was a very sad journey for the young boy. They had not travelled far before his mother fell ill. It was a quick and fatal illness. Although she had covered only a short distance from Yathrib, she could not return there, nor could she continue her journey back home. So, the six-year-old Muhammad was now without both of his parents. After Amina had been buried where she died, at Al-Abwa, Muhammad continued the journey to Mecca with his nurse, Umm Aiman, His heart full of sorrow. He felt that nothing could replace for him the love and tenderness of his mother. To his last days, he continued to remember Aminah and to feel the pain of losing her. The Prophet continued to show his gratitude to all those women who took care of him in his childhood to the end of his days. He was so grateful to Thueba, the first woman to suckle him immediately after he was born. When he conquered Mecca over 60 years later, he asked for her. When he learned that she had died, he also inquired after her son whom she was suckling when he himself was born. He wanted to extend his kindness to him, but he was told that he also had died. Halima visited him in Medina. When she arrived, he rose to receive her shouting, My mother, my mother! He showed her all the gratitude of a loving and dutiful son. He was also kind to al Helima's Halima's daughter and his suckling sister. After the Battle of Hunayn, in which the tribe of Hawazan was defeated, Al-Shayma was taken prisoner by the Muslim soldiers. She made her relationship with the Prophet known to them, so they took her to him. He received her well and extended extra kindness to her before sending her back to her people with honour, after giving her the opportunity to stay with him, it was her choice to go back. Um Umm Aamun continued to be close to the Prophet for the rest of his life. He married her later to Zayd ibn Haritha, the first man to become a Muslim. Whom the Prophet loved more than anyone else. She gave birth to Usama, whom the Prophet loved as he loved no child besides his own. After his mother's death, Muhammad was in the care of his grandfather, Abdel Matallib. Umm ayman a slave girl whose real name was Baraka, continued to look after him. She had belonged to his father, and now she was his own. She loved him dearly perhaps more so because she was fully aware of the fact that he had lost both his parents before his sixth birthday. Muhammad's grandfather indulged him more than was customary in Arabian society, where the emphasis was on strict discipline in the upbringing of young ones. No child was admitted to a room where his father was meeting other men. Yet, Abdel Muttalib, chief of Mecca, allowed his young grandson to sit on the couch when he was in a meeting with Mecca notables. His own children, now all grown up, remained standing, but Muhammad was allowed to sit on his grandfather's couch. If Muhammad's uncles tried to stop him, Abd al would tell them not to do so. On one occasion he told them, leave my child alone. He senses that he will one day acquire a kingdom. At another time, he said, he will certainly have a great future. A Transfer of Care Abdul Matalib realised that his own death would not be long in coming. The future of the orphan child was one of his most immediate concerns. He therefore called in his son Abu Talib and asked him specifically to look after Muhammad, his nephew, when he himself had died. It was good that he did so, because Abdul Matalib died within two years of Muhammad coming into his care. It is said that Abdul Matalib was 120 when he died. But his grandchild was only eight. Again, death snatched away a loving soul from Muhammad's life. He was extremely distressed to lose his grandfather. He felt that he had lost a man whose kindness to him could not be equalled by any other. He grieved for his loss, as only a loving child could grieve when he realised that he would not be seeing his beloved one anymore. Perhaps Abdul Madalib chose to trust Muhammad to the care of Abu Talib, because the latter had the same mother as Abdullah, Muhammad's father. He might also have realised that Abu Talib was the kindest and most caring of his children. This explains why Abu Talib was chosen for this task, despite the fact that he had many children of his own and was a man of little means. Many of Muhammad's other uncles were better placed to look after him from a financial point of view, yet Abdul Madalib chose Abu Talib. And what an appropriate choice it proved to be. Abu Talib continued to look after Muhammad until he became a man. Even then, he continued to show him the love and care a father shows to his adult son. He was never slow in giving him sound advice and guidance. When Muhammad started to receive his message and convey it to people, Abu Talib supported him in the face of strong opposition from the Quraysh. He never failed him, even when the pressures were too strong to bear for an old man, as Abu Talib was at the time. There was a relationship of mutual love and respect between uncle and orphan nephew. Indeed, Abu Talib loved Muhammad as much as he loved his dearest child, if not more. Again, when he was in the care of his uncle, there were signs that God's blessings were associated with the presence of Muhammad. While there was no sudden influx of riches into the house of Abu Talib, They always seemed to be enough when Muhammad was there. If dinner was served and Muhammad was not present, Abu Talib would order his children to wait for him. He had noticed that when Muhammad was eating with them, the food seemed plentiful and everybody had his fill. If he was absent, the food seemed not to be sufficient and everybody asked for more. On the whole, Muhammad's childhood was very pleasant. He radiated happiness to all around him. Hence, it was not surprising that he was loved dearly by all those close to him. We have several reports of that period in the life of Muhammad which suggest that various people recognised him as the future prophet. Many suggest that the people recognising him tried to get him killed. The first reports speak of Halima taking Muhammad to a fortune teller to divine his future. None of these reports, however, attains a sufficient degree of authenticity to make it of any great value. Such things might have happened. Their effect on either the boy himself or on those looking after him was limited. Nor can the story of Muhammad's encounter with the Christian monk of the town of Basra in southern Syria be of great importance. This story suggests that Muhammad clung to his uncle Abu Talib when he was about to depart on a trade journey to Syria and would not let him go without him. Abu Talib then decided to take his twelve year old nephew with him. It is said that on the way back home after finishing their business in Syria, this monk, Bahira, invited the whole caravan to a dinner. This was a marked departure from his past habit. He insisted that everybody in the party should attend. He recognized Muhammad and spoke to him, questioning him on many aspects of his life. He also recognized a mark on Muhammad's shoulder which indicated that he was to be the last prophet. When he was certain of that fact, Bahira asked Abu Talib what relation the boy was to him. When Abu Talib said that he was his son, as the Arabs considered that an uncle was in the same position as a father, Bahira said to him, He is not your son. This boy's father should not be alive. Abu Talib told him that Muhammad was his nephew and that his father had died before his birth. Bahira said, that is right. Take your nephew back to his hometown and watch him carefully. This nephew of yours is certain to have a great future. Whatever the truth about the story and the other reports to which we have referred, it is certain that they did not influence Muhammad in any way. We have to remember that he was still a child and he could not have aspired to any distinction as a result of Bahira's discourse. Moreover, it seems that the men who heard Bahira's conversation with Abu Talib did not bother to relate it to other people. The only value of these reports is that they confirm the fact that learned men of other religions were aware of the imminent appearance of a prophet in Arabia. Their knowledge is based on what is definitely contained in their scriptures. Muhammad was only 12 when he went on the trip with his uncle Abu Talib. Some reports suggest that he was even younger. Not long after he came back to Mecca, he realised that he had to do something in order to help his poor uncle, who had a large family to support. Although from the time of his birth, Muhammad brought his blessings to his immediate environment, wherever it happened to be, as is clearly related by Halima, his wet nurse, he was not meant to enjoy a life of affluence. There always seemed to be enough for everyone around, but there was little to spare. Muhammad himself needed very little. He was content with whatever was available to him. But he always had a keen sense of what was going on around him. His uncle's situation cried out for help and Muhammad was aware of that. First Employment In the Meccan society of that time, there was little a young boy of Muhammad's age could do. The life of the whole community depended largely on trade which thrived through regular trips to Syria and Yemen. These trips meant that the Meccan trade was essentially what we call nowadays foreign trade, depending on export and import. To be successful in such a field required multifaceted experience, which could not have been acquired by a young boy in his early teens. Moreover, traveling at such a tender age through a difficult terrain like that of Arabia was too much of an adventure for a young boy. There was little or no agriculture in Mecca or the area around it. Few, if any, industrial occupations were available. The Arabs actually looked down on anyone engaged in such employment. The only occupation worthy of the Arabs of Mecca was trade. Hence, there was nothing Muhammad could do to help his uncle except to work as a shepherd. The life of a shepherd is associated with contemplation and patience. A shepherd has long periods of time when there is little for him to do except watch his animals grazing. As he sits alone, his thoughts must inevitably turn to the universe around him. He thinks of its creation and its limitless expanse. He thinks how different varieties of creatures share their lives in a little corner of it, and of what lies beyond the realm of human perception. He thinks of the great variety of plants that come from the earth, each with its distinctive characteristics and widely different fruits. Yet they all come out of the same type of soil and feed on the same water. His thoughts are bound to lead him to think of the great power that controls everything in the universe. A shepherd needs patience, and as he goes about his work, he is bound to develop that quality without which he cannot really tend his sheep. Perhaps it is for these two qualities, along with less important ones, that god has chosen this type of work for his messengers and prophets it is well known that moses and david were given prophethood when they were actually engaged in tending sheep the prophet was once asked whether he also tended sheep and he answered yes indeed every prophet tended sheep at one time or another when we think carefully about it we are bound to conclude that prophets who in the latter part of their lives look after human beings and shepherd them receive their early training when they begin their practical life as shepherds. This particular occupation is a form of education. It helps the shepherd to acquire a keen sense of what is around him and develop his ability to attend to detail. He also develops another quality which is essential in his later career, an ability to work consistently towards the achievement of a definite goal set in advance and to persevere with it, until that goal is achieved. Muhammad was not the only boy who worked as a shepherd in Mecca. This was the job which noble families in Mecca did not despise. Other boys of similar age also tended camels and sheep. Sometimes, some of them met and developed friendships. They talked about what they did at night. On many occasions, parties and social events were organised in Mecca. Boys of Muhammad's age frequented these when they met during their long days, they talked about the fun they had at these parties. It was natural, therefore, that Muhammad should think of doing as other boys did. He is quoted by Ali ibn Abi Talib, his cousin, to have said, I never thought about taking part in what the people who lived in ignorance were organising in the way of entertainment, except on two nights. On both occasions, God protected me against evil. One night, I said to one of my fellow shepherds, would you kindly look after my sheep to give me a chance to go down to Mecca and attend a social function like other boys do? He was willing to do that. I went to Mecca. As I entered, I heard music and singing in the first house. I asked what the occasion was, and I was told that it was a wedding party. I sat down to look. Soon, my head was heavy and I slept. I was awoken only next morning by the heat of the sun. I went back to my friend and reported to him what had happened. I did it again and the same thing happened to me. I never again thought or did anything of this sort until God honoured me with prophethood. In this way, Muhammad was protected by God against indulging in any form of entertainment which was unbecoming of the one who had become the last of his messengers to mankind. Other reports exist, which suggest that Muhammad was protected against any moral slip from the time when he was a young boy. Certain values introduced by Islam were unheard of in the Meccan society in which he grew up, as indeed, they have always been unfamiliar in societies that do not observe a strict moral code. For instance, to appear in a nude in front of people of the same sex is acceptable in most non-Islamic societies. Some communities go even further. In our modern times, the naturist idea has found many supporters, and naturist clubs which promote communal nudity have been established in many places in Europe. This is contrary to the Islamic idea of propriety. In his youth, Muhammad was totally unaware of the Islamic values of propriety. Nevertheless, he was made to abide by them. A few years before the beginning of the Qur'anic revelations, The Quraysh decided to repair the building of the Kaaba, which we shall discuss in more detail later on. The Prophet helped in the repair work along with many Meccans. Those who carried the stones and went to and fro took off their lower garments and put them on their shoulders as cushions in which to place the stones. Since the Arabs had no underwear at that time, those who did this were working in the nude. Only Muhammad carried the stones with his lower garment on. His uncle, Al-Abbas, who was working with him, suggested to him that he should use his garment to protect his shoulder. When Muhammad did this, he fell to the ground unconscious. A moment later, he regained consciousness, searched for his garment and tightened it around his waist. He then resumed work. A very similar report suggests that the same thing happened to him much earlier. The Prophet is quoted to have said that when he was a young boy, He was playing with boys of his own age, carrying stones from one place to another. He said, We were all undressed. We took our garments and placed them on our shoulders to put the stones on them. I was moving around with the other children when someone I did not see leveled at me a very hard punch. He said, Put on your garment. I wrapped myself with it and made it tight. I continued to carry the stones on my shoulder, but I was the only one wearing my garment. Both reports are clear examples of how essential moral values of undistorted human nature were applied to Muhammad even before he became a prophet. This was part of the education he received. Although Muhammad was not educated in a formal school or by any particular tutor, he was placed in the thick of many events which gave him a keen sense of the values which needed to be preserved in any morally healthy society. Personal education was also given to him so that he could develop a code of behavior which made all types of frivolity alien to his nature. Such an education is far more effective and longer lasting than any formal schooling. As we shall see in the next chapters, Muhammad's understanding of all aspects of life was much more profound than that of any philosopher or man of wisdom. Join us next time for chapter 3 From Youth to maturity.